Hey, good morning. You guys doing well? Man, what, a, what an amazing time of worship already. Come on, right? Like, sometimes I feel like uh, after worship, I'm like, man, we just need to like go home and just like, because you just, you just, you encounter God's presence and it's, it's crazy to think of all the things that God does in those moments. And, uh, but also I know that God uses his word all the time. And that when we read and we study God's word, that it illuminates our lives. It begins to show us different areas that we can work on. And, and today I want to challenge us with a message and with a new series called Every Follower. And the idea and concept is this, is that every follower has a calling. That every follower has a calling that the Lord has placed upon you. It's actually a gift that he has given. And the gift is actually to the church as a whole. That you're a gift to the church. In fact, look at your neighbor right now and just say, you're a gift. You're a gift. Each and every one of you are a gift to the church. And you may say, well, what kind of gift am I? Well, I guess you get to determine that. Because you get to determine whether you will answer the calling that the Lord has on your life or whether you won't. You have a choice of, of whether you'll actually step into the calling that God's placed upon you and you'll work in unison with the church and, and around you. And you may sit there and go, well, well who is the church? Well, who, 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 would, who would the church be? Is it, is it a building? Is it the people? And we'll talk about that here in a minute and go a little bit deeper into that. But, but when I think about us in, in general in life, I, a lot of times what I think about is this, is the idea that you and I are constantly, constantly trying to find balance. Is anyone out there trying to, ever trying to find balance in life? Come on, just raise your hand real quick. You're trying to find balance. Yeah, like balancing, like all of us, we look at different things and we, we're trying to find balance. We're trying to find balance between maybe work and, and our home. We're, we're trying to find balance between our hobbies and, and our home life and, and maybe our work life and we're trying to constantly find balance. What's interesting, though, is the word balance, by definition, has multiple definitions that, when used in the context of a sentence, actually tell us what the word actually means. So, for instance, this. If I was to say this to you, this week while I was out boating, I lost my balance and I fell in the water. You would look at that and you would go, oh, okay, based upon how he's using the word balance in that sentence, he's meaning this, his physical equilibrium, like he kind of got a little off kilter and he lost track of it and he fell out of the boat. Now, if I was to then say this, the kids ministry raised money for kingdom builders by bringing in change and the money buckets were perfectly balanced you would look at it and say, this is a definition. Stability produced by even distribution of weight on each side of the vertical axis. Interesting because a different definition, but yet the same word. You could continue, if I was to say this, I went to the bank this week and noticed that my savings account had a large balance. Come on now. Anyone say, I receive it. <laughs> wish it worked that way but we can speak it but here's a, that definition would be this an amount in excess especially on the credit side of an account if I was to say this it's hard to throw a leader off balance who knows clearly the mission and the win of an organization 
could be this, the mental and emotional steadiness. Same word when used in different contexts, meaning different things. What does it look like when something's out of balance? Well, I think for many of us, we see life many times out of balance. When your checkbook is out of balance, right? Like you spent more money than what's in the checkbook. I remember when Kasha and I first got married, there was a few times where we spent more money than what we had in the account and things got a little out of balance. Back then, man, when things got out of balance, it was not good. Like you had checks bouncing. Anyone ever bounced a check before? Some of you are like, am I supposed to raise my hand to that? <laughs> it's okay. I mean, like we, there always have been things that have become out of balance. Now, when you hear the word church, the word church, what comes to mind? What, what, what would you think of maybe the definition of a church? If you were to go right now and go to Miriam Dictionary Online, you would see this. You would see the definition would be this. It would go based on, like, I went to church at Bethany Assembly on Sunday. That's what a lot of people would say. You, you went to church this Sunday, and people would say, oh, well, that's a building for public and especially Christian worship. It's, it's a building. People would say the church is a building. For many years, and still today, when people refer to the church, they think of a building. They think of a location. Oh, the church, the Nazarene church. Oh, yeah, they meet down 223 across from Adrian College. People would think that that's where the church is. But if you were to say this, I'm a part of the church, then maybe by definition it would be a body or an organization of religious believers. Oh, okay, so now it's a group of people that are meeting together and apart. Maybe if you, uh, would, like for me when I was in college, it was I considered the church as a possible career, quote-unquote. A calling, really, but, but some people would say it's a career, and so it would be more of this profession. Same word, but different meanings when used in a different context. I think for many of us in the room here today, if we were to think about the church, we would all have different definitions as to what the church is. Some of us have had good experiences with the church. Some of us have had bad I know that some of you today, you're sitting here and maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe others of you, you've been helped by the church. Maybe there's been times of helping and hurting. Maybe there have been times of, of joy and disappointment. We've all had different experiences and we would all define the church in different ways. The beauty is, is you and I don't have to guess about what the church is and what the role of the church is. We can look through the scriptures heard a lot of people say these things through the years, things like, we don't really need to study the Bible, all we need is just the Holy Spirit, and, and though we're Pentecostal, and though we would say, yes, we need the Spirit of God working in our lives, I would say this, without the Word of God, we can't know the Spirit, because the Word of God is what shows us who Jesus is, it shows us the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and I'm so thankful for the Scriptures, thankful for what it means to my life. We encourage you every day to spend time in God's word, not out of like, out of, like duty or rules or anything like that, just, just out of our, our hope and desire is that you would grow in your relationship with God because in your relationship with God continues to grow, what you'll find is you will find the peace that you're looking for. You will find the joy that you're looking for. You will find the satisfaction you're looking for. One confident thing I can always know is this, is you will never find complete satisfaction in the things of this world but you will always find complete satisfaction in the things of God. It's, it's like a, every time you can take it to the bank, the check will always cash type moment. 
In God, there is satisfaction. And the things of this world, it's normally temporary satisfaction. Ever had a temporary satisfaction moment when later on you look back and you go, oh, that was so dumb. What was I doing and what was I thinking? At the lake this year, I'm sure there was a lot of those moments happening. People just having a good old time, doing their own thing. But I'm telling you, that stuff just continues to leave you empty as time goes on. So what does it mean then if we were to take the word balanced and church and put them together? What does a balanced church look like? Have you ever thought of that? What does a balanced church look like? I'll say this, I think in many ways the church has become unbalanced as time's gone on. I think even here at Bethany there's been times where we found ourselves in an, in, in an imbalanced situation where the church wasn't balanced the way that God actually designed and created the church to be. I think I understand a little bit of the reasoning as to why and that's going to be the goal in this series is really to walk through that. My desire today isn't to convince you to be a follower of Jesus, though I hope that you are. My decision today is really to call the church to a higher action and a higher calling. If today you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, can I just encourage you with something and just say this. God has already known everywhere you've been, everything you've done. He knows your complete story and is still crazy, madly in love with you. You need to know that, you need to hear that, and experience it. And what will happen is, is when you accept the love that the Father has for you, it will change your life, and you will become a follower of Jesus. See, a lot of people are fans and stands. A lot of people like, like the idea of who Jesus is. In fact, I know a lot of people who, who don't want to have anything to do ever with the church, anything to do with religion, but they love Jesus, which is crazy, because it's like the church is the bride of Christ. Like, the two go hand in hand together, but, but why would people love Jesus and not love the church? Well, I think it's because the church has gotten out of whack, and we've begun to operate in ways and things that we shouldn't be doing, and we've allowed certain gifts to begin to rise, and what happens is, is when any one gift rises above all the others that God's called to, things become dysfunctional. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at this challenge that the early church is dealing with. In fact, Paul's kind of addressing it. I don't think it's a new challenge in the sense that it's something new that only we today are dealing with. In fact, I think this is something that the church has dealt with for years. It's part of why we look throughout the New Testament and see much of the writings to the church. What's interesting is even throughout that, when we see the church being challenged in different things, the challenge has always been for them to be a place of unity, a place where people are unified together in a common mission, a common, common, uh, a common mission <laughs> where people are going after it. In Acts, the early church, we see that they're selling everything, they're bringing all their goods, everything together. Why? Because they're, they, they have a mission, the mission is, is to spread the good news, the gospel out. And then what God does is he places inside of the church, the body of Christ, these different gifts that we'll read about here in a moment. 
Paul starts this off in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, just make note of that. Remember, he finds himself in chains. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You, the church, have been called to actually something bigger than yourself. And there is a way that you are called to walk in. There's a manner that's worthy of your calling. There's a manner of, of how you're to act and how you're to respond. Part of the issue of why people around us don't love the church is because people who have been called to be a part of the church aren't being the church. They're not being who God's called them to be. Well, what does it mean? What, is, what does it look like to be who God's called us to be? Well, he goes on and begins to share with us what that looks like. He says, with humility. Then he says, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's this idea that in order to be worthy of the calling, in order to walk that calling out, you and I are to be humble people, we'll be the gentle people, to be patient people. I know this weekend, there was moments when, uh, this past week actually, when we were on the lake, and I was, I was in different scenarios, and one of them, I was with a, a good, dear friend of mine. I love him to death. And, and we were out on his boat, and there was a young girl who was out in the jet ski. And she was, she was really too young, probably, to be on the jet ski, probably 12 years old or whatever. And this girl was just whipping around everywhere. She, she, she was having the greatest time on the lake, but she was stressing everybody else out. Jumping in front of the boats, we couldn't take off half the time because she's, you know, whipping around, not even, not even conscious. Just like a 12-year-old would be, right? Like, you put them on a jet ski, they think they own the whole lake, but it's busy on the lake. And we're trying to pull people behind us, and so, you know, you're trying to watch where you're going, you got skier behind you, and all these things going on, and, and all this is happening, and then those moments just come in, and you're just like, man, like, I need patience right now. And I was glad I wasn't driving. So yesterday, um, my parents invited us to go to the lake, so we went to the lake again, and we went to Jordan Lake, and, and, which is up past Lansing, almost towards Grand Rapids. And so we're up there, and we're on the lake, and it was so packed. And my dad literally was driving for a little bit, and finally he's like, there's just too many people out here, Brian. Do you want to drive? And I'm like, ah, fine. So I drive, and I'm driving around and everything. And literally, I finally got to the place where I said, we're pulling back in. We pulled back in. And Gabe's like, it's just too rough. I'm like, yes, and there's too many boats out here. And, and I was like, I'm done. Because honestly, I had recognized that my patience level was gone. I was no longer going to be walking in a manner worthy of the calling, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so I went and I sat in the chair in the shade up by the beach and read a book. <laughs> and it was fantastic. You see... For each and every one of us, there is a calling that we walk in. Like, for instance, if a police officer, if, when, he, when he works, when he is walking in a manner worthy of his calling, we would say this. Well, he, he lives in a way that's worthy of his profession. He doesn't steal. He doesn't cheat. He defends and upholds the law. That's what you would expect out of a police officer. When he doesn't do that, if a police officer's out there stealing, he's out there doing stuff, you'd be like, that guy's not worthy of his calling. Kosh and I literally were just talking about officers, and we were like, man, that is one hard profession. And I would just encourage you to pray for our officers and to back them and to support them. I know they're not perfect, 
But I'll tell you this, they see and deal with some of the toughest things in life. More so than what I do even as a pastor. I mean, I hear about things, but, but I'm not there on the scene when those moments are happening. I'm not there on the scene writing up reports on things. I'm not there when the, when the call gets, you know, there's a, there's a dispute, all those different things. We need to pray for our officers. We need to support them. But when a, do- or when a doctor, if he's worthy of a calling, we would say this. He, he heals the sick by using modern medicine. He cares for those who are ill. He makes them well. If we were to talk about a, a farmer who's worthy of his calling, he's, he's someone who plants seed but then actually toils it up. He actually, actually begins to harvest the crop. He's someone who actually is looking to the task and actually accomplishing it. And as Christians, there are these marks that you and I are challenged to live by, that of humility, that of gentleness, that of patience, that of love, that of peace. And there are other spiritual gifts or fruits of the Spirit, excuse me, that are in operation in our lives. And what would happen is, is if we as believers would walk those out, other people around us would begin to take notice. And they would start saying, there's something different about you. You act differently, you think differently. You respond differently. Now you might say it's not fair because sometimes as a Christian I feel like I'm under the microscope. Welcome to the club. Imagine being a pastor. Like when I cut someone off and I give them the bird, like that does not go over well. I don't do that, but I'm just saying like if I did that, like could you imagine? I know what would happen at my next board meeting. (laughs) Some would be like, Pastor, we need, we, need to, we need to talk to you. So-and-so from the church called in, said they were driving, and, and uh, they, they didn't see you there, and they kind of cut you off, but you stuck your hand out, flung up the middle finger at them. They, they thought maybe you were saying hello, but then they realized <laughs> it was a different kind of hello. That wouldn't be a fruit that we're talking about here. And why... Why does the scripture say we are to actually have these fruits? Well, it actually says this. It's for the purpose of unity. It's unity that comes in the spirit that then produces a bond, a a connection, something that can't be broken, a bond of what? Of peace. The world needs peace. It's not going to come through legislation. I not saying legislation is bad, but I'm just telling you, the peace that our nation and our world needs is not going to come through more legislation. If you don't believe me, just read in Revelation and see what are some of the things that are being foretold that are coming. Listen, the only thing that will bring peace is Christ. It's through putting him on the throne in our lives, and it's through us being who God has called us to be. Back to verse 4. Here's what it says, it says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now notice that. To your call. Everyone say, your call. It's talking about your call, your calling. You're a part of one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Father is a part of our lives 
and you have a calling on your life. There's something that you are a part of. You're, you are a part of one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. If you've ever served in the military or know anything about the military, in the military there's, there's one head. There's not multiple, there's one. And what the one head says goes throughout the entire organization because many times the leaders who are underneath them don't know what the one person is actually giving the instructions of what needs to go. And they may not know that, that they're actually planning a counterattack over here. And so everyone has a specific role of what they're supposed to do. In the church, the head of the church is not Pastor Brian. The head of the church is Jesus. And what he has done is he has given us his word to then be able to know, here's the marching orders. My job and the primary role that I fulfill many times is that of a shepherd teacher, and that is to look at God's word and begin to speak those things. But also, I'm also supposed to be operating in an apostolic and a prophetic and an evangelistic, but I'll be honest with you, that can get wearing when one person is trying to do and be all those things. So what we see is among many pastors is, is they're trying to be all these things, but yet God's only called them to maybe a few, maybe even just one. In John chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus said this, the glory that, has been, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is literally calling us to unity. He says, listen, I've even given them that. I've given them the spirit of unity. I've given them the bond of peace. I've placed inside of them the gifts and, and the talents. See, the beauty of the cross is this, is the beauty of the cross is, is the cross is unity. What the cross does is, is it unifies us. We have been unified with the Father as sons and daughters. You and I have been unified with the Father as sons and daughters. And the beauty of the cross is actually unity. Think about it. It's unity no matter what your, what your race is. It's unity no matter what your background is. It's unity no matter what your gender is. It's unity across the board for all mankind. The cross is not, is not um, does not pick or choose. The cross is for everyone. It brings unity across the board. I found myself in in various countries at times and found myself in, in, in a country like Haiti and, and been worshiping with people and, and sit there and don't even know the language of what they're saying. But you know what? There's a unity that's there because my heart is just crying out to the Father right alongside of them. And though I may not even know the words, there is something that I know because there's unity that's been found in the cross. You've been bought. You've been united to Christ. The same God that indwells in each and every one of you is the same God, the same Holy Spirit, the same one that raised Christ from the dead. So what happens sometimes in the body of Christ, though, is, is instead of allowing all the gifts to actually permeate and continue to move forward, we begin to allow one singular gift or two maybe to grow. And when I think about the Western church, and I've been studying this for quite some time actually and actually was going to go a different direction with this message and just felt the Lord really impressing in my heart this is the time this is the season for this series and I started reading and started reading some more books and started taking in some more podcasts and different things and just began just kind of just munching on things that I've been munching on for quite some time and started realizing this that 
that there's always been this struggle of balance in the church. We're either hyper-grace or we're hyper-law. We're, we're, either, we're either charismatic and crazy or we don't worship at all. Like we, We're always this extreme in the church. There's, there's these two sides. Of, and I, what I believe Christ has done, I've held this conviction for a long time, is I think when Jesus came in, he came in and just put himself right in the middle. And he said, hey, yeah, I understand the law and the importance of it. And I understand grace and the importance of it. It's both and. But I think the church, we love to, to pick a side. And, and what has happened is, is in this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4, I think what's happened is we've actually, in the Western church, we've actually developed the church body, quote unquote, around specific gifts that have been actually given. But we'll get back to the scriptures. It says this in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each and every one of us, we've been given a gift. But God simply doesn't require unity without providing the means to achieve it. Think about that. God doesn't say, yes, I want you to have unity, and you just got to figure it out. He actually gives us the gifts that provide the unity that Ephesians chapter 4 talks about. And then there's this passage in here that in many ways I think a lot of people kind of skip over. They begin to pass and to say, oh, that passage of Scripture, it's weird. Why is that even in here? But can I just say this? God doesn't make a mistake when he puts things in his word. There's a reason for it, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. Verse 8 says this. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now it's kind of interesting because all of a sudden you're reading through and all of a sudden now we're talking about the ascension of Christ. And if you don't have a, a, a real good understanding of this, in, in many ways, you kind of do. You just kind of look at it and go, okay, that's great. Let's go on to the next verse, chapter 11, or verse 11. That's, that's what we need to get to. That's the meat and the potatoes. But there's a reason why this is in here, and I believe the reason why it's on here is because it says this. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So think about the life of Jesus. He leaves heaven and comes to earth. He lives a sinless life. He then bears the sins of mankind upon his shoulders. That's the cross. That's what the power of the cross is all about. Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb, paying the price for your sins and my sins. He dies upon the cross. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Then he goes and he walks among the people, showing himself to them. And then the Bible tells us that he ascends into heaven. When you look in Acts, you see he says this. He says, listen, I'm going away, guys, but don't worry. I'm going to send for you the Holy Spirit, and you'll do even greater things. I'm sending you the comforter. But also, he speaks to these gifts that have been given. And that's why I think it's being talked about here is because it's saying, listen, you've been given a gift. He ascends to heaven, but here's the gift. You are the gift. You may say, well, how am I the gift? Because some of you are called to one of these. One of these. In verse 11, it says this, he gave the apostles. Now notice it says he, 
Jesus, the Father, he gave the apostles, that's the gifts, these are the gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? It says to equip the saints. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Fivefold is what we would call it many times in charismatic circles, the fivefold ministry. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. Some have written a book, a guy by the name of Alan Hirsch, I've read lots of his stuff. He calls it the apest. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. This word equip here, when you really dig into it, is just like our original definitions that we were talking through. So here's some different things that, that the word equip would mean. Restoration. Reconciliation. So think about that. He gives these five gifts to reconcile the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Think about this. It, it could mean support. He gave these five gifts to support the saints for the work of the ministry to qualify, to make adequate, to furnish completely. There's this idea that the word equip right here in context of what we're looking at is actually something that has been given to us. There's a gift that you and I have been given to actually operate in. The five-fold ministry. Apostle, these are the sent ones. And we'll dig into this the next few weeks. We're going to really dig into to what these mean. But the apostles are the sent ones. Now, you may say, well, what, what would apostle look like or be like? You know, apostle, these are the guys who are like the entrepreneurs of the Christian faith, right? Like, they love starting things. They got big vision. They, they love to create things. I have a little bit of an apostolic calling on my life. I, I, love, I love creating. I love that idea. I think it's one of the reasons why I think in systems many times, even though systems are sometimes hard for me. But, like, I think in that way because I think there's this apostolic calling. I love the idea of reaching and, and planting and growing. And so there's this idea of being a sent one. But here's what I've seen in ministry many times through the years is I've seen a lot of people have that nature inside of, but instead of being sent ones, they're went ones. Instead of submitting to the body of Christ and realizing that they're a part of, of what God's doing among the body collectively, they go, no, my gift's the most important. I need to go do it. I served underneath a man by the name of Pastor Dave Williams in just an incredible time in my life and painful time, all these, all these different things, you know. But I learned a lot, and one of the things that he used to always say is true ministry is sent ministry. It means you've been sent out. You've, you said, hey, listen, I, I'm putting myself a part of the church, the body of Christ, and I'm recognizing that. But what's happened in Western culture, and in Western church culture especially, is we have said to the apostle, there's not a place for you. We've said to the prophet, which is the next one, there's really not a place for you. Because the prophet is the one who really has this, this God-oriented heart. They've they got this vertical connection with God and this horizontal connection with others. And if you've ever met someone who kind of operates in, a, in, in the role of a prophet, the, the calling, what, what it is is they're constantly calling people to God. Repent! Repent! If you look at a lot of, a lot of our worship today, a lot of it's calling people to repentance. 
But there's this idea of this vertical connection, but there's also this horizontal connection. So you can see people who have like that prophet side of them, really they have this really deep longing for social injustice to be solved. There's like, there's like this piece of them like, man, I just, I feel like we're supposed to help those who are in need and, and that's an injustice over there. And I need, I need to help take care of that. That's, that's a prophet calling on them. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of times in the Western church, we don't like the prophet to actually have a voice because the prophet many times is calling out the very thing that the shepherd's trying to do. And so there's always this conflict and this thing. But today what I want to challenge us with in the next few weeks I want to challenge us with is I believe that all five are actually necessary to work together. And that any time... All five of them aren't working together. I know this may be a big paradigm shift for many of us, but anytime all five of them are not working together, what that happens is, is that becomes dysfunction. And I'll unpack that here a little bit more in a moment. Then we have evangelists. These are the ones who are like, man, they, they are just, they're constantly seeing the loss. They're constantly saying we got to be out there. They're kind of the, they're the natural people movers. They can gather people together. They're very um, convincing they're very passionate. Then you have the shepherds. Now, before I get into shepherds, let me just pause here for a minute. The first three that we've talked about have primarily in Western culture been outside of the church. What I'm saying is I think they've always been meant to be inside of the church. But what we've seen in the Western culture is we've seen church become around the role of the shepherd and the teacher. It's, it's primarily this role. Hi, I'm Brian Henley. I'm the lead pastor. And based upon my calling and my gift set is normally how many churches in Western culture are actually developed. So I'll say this. Pastor Randy Santiago, who used to be the pastor here before, he had a call, like he had an evangelist calling on his life. I've listened to some of his messages. Man, that, that guy, he, he could talk about the Lord and, and there would just be an, there would be an anointing that would come out. And I understand there's pain, all those different things. Come on, church, we gotta get over this stuff. Because Jesus saved you just like he saved him. He's forgiven you just like he's forgiven him. So we don't walk in the pain, we walk in the freedom, okay? But there was an evangelist calling on him. You saw him actually doing that. You saw that in Rick last week. Sitting there thinking in my mind, I gave the same, same altar call message, Rick. You give it, 26 people will come to know Jesus. <laughs> come on, folks. Are you, waiting to, are you waiting for Rick so that Rick can, you know, like, like why didn't you? I, I did the same call the week before. But there's an evangelist calling on Rick. You can see it. You can see it in his life. But here's what has happened in the Western culture in the church today. What has happened is, is we've taken the gift of the one that we call pastor, and we've said his gift set is what will kind of primarily allow in the church. So if he's a teacher, you'll see the church is really strong on teacher. If he's a prophet, you'll see the church is really strong on the, on the prophetic. If he's an apostolic, then you'll see it's really strong apostolic. But what's happening is, and we'll talk about this here in a second, and I keep getting ahead of myself, but I know where we're going, so we're okay. But um, is, that, 
is that in the church, we see this dysfunction begin to arise. It's just like your body. Inside of your body, you have different systems. So you have your lymphatic system. You have your cardiovascular system. Uh, there's other ones, and I can't even remember them, but you have more. Okay, I think there's like 15 major systems or something like that. I don't even know if that's right. Where's my nurses? Not a doctor. But anyways, you have systems, all right? Here's what I know about those systems is that if one of those systems stops working, you get sick. Just one of those systems in your body stops working, you begin to get sick. Two of them stops working, you're in the hospital. Three of them, you're probably maybe facing death. And first gathering, I had nurses who were like, yeah, that's right. So I know it's right because they were agreeing. They were like, amen, amen. Guess I just don't have that this gathering or you're sleeping. So wake up. But... Um, Here's what I'm trying to say, is that in the church, anytime we allow one gift to be the primary gift, then what we're doing is we're creating an unhealthy culture. And that unhealthy culture begins to not allow people to be who God's called them to be. Because we, we put it around the one gift of the one God. And normally, normally in the Western church, is we develop it around the gifting of the one guy who's normally in the role as pastor, which actually is shepherd. Now, what's interesting is if you were to look at the word apostle, you can see in the New Testament, the word apostle is used like over 80 times. The word prophet is used over like 120 plus times. The word evangelist is used, I can't remember, and I should have looked in between gatherings, but I couldn't remember first gathering either, but it's used a bunch. Shepherd, though, get this, the word shepherd, which we primarily call pastor, is used one time. It's interesting, used one time. Now I know there's other metaphors and other times throughout the New Testament where we see the idea of the shepherd and taking care of the sheep and all that being used. But what I'm trying to say is that I think what has happened in the Western church is we've said pastor actually meets all the fivefold gifts when actually the word of God tells us here in Ephesians that he gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave shepherds, he gave teachers. All these different gifts that he's given to what? To the church for what? For the building of the church and the work of ministry. There's a gift that you have been given and can operate in. So a shepherd, in many ways, is the one who we begin to take care of the churches. So think about churches as a whole for a minute with me. If it's an apostolic church, here's what you'll find. Is that the apostolic church is the one who wants to break new ground. They're constantly pushing the bounds of creativity and ministry. They're forging ahead in new territory. These are the communities where spirituality tends to be experienced as something dynamic, this adventurous and innovative. And, and I have a longing for this. Like, man, I love the adventure. I love the innovation. I love that kind of stuff. Like, there's, an, there's a little bit of that apostolic inside of me. That's why I planted a church years ago. Because there's an apostolic calling in there. But what happens is, is primarily in the Western church, the role of the pastor, we allow that one gift to begin to dominate. And what happens is when we allow the gift of the pastor to dominate, here's what begins to happen. So like in an apostolic way, the organization will become very much so task-driven, demanding, and even sometimes alienating. It's like, we got things to do, we gotta go. And if you're not on board, get off. If you don't want to do it, too bad, so sad. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. 
Now, in churches where there's a strong prophetic, they have the strong vertical connection and horizontal connection with others. They speak true to those in power. So you see that in a lot of churches that are really operating the prophetic, they're, they're calling the church out. They're calling people of high, in higher places of authority out. They're, they have justice-oriented ministry that's coming out. Their spirituality is equated to the care for the poor, and it's marginalized kind of to the outsider. But here's, here's what happens, though, is in this passionate call to God and passionate call to others, when the prophetic is over-dominant, and that's the only thing that happens, is you can see that the community becomes, in some ways, outright wacky. And you've probably seen this in some church. They just get wacky. Like, just stuff just starts getting crazy. And then all of a sudden, they become very overcritical. They become demanding. They become judgmental. They begin looking at other ones all around and go, see, you just, don't have the pre- you just don't have the understanding of who God is. If you had the understanding of who God is, then everything would be there. And I'm not saying that that, that gift is not needed. I'm just trying to show you the other side of it. Anytime a church operates in just one of the five gifts primarily, it becomes dysfunctional. Think about evangelism type church. These are churches who tend to be characterized by a heart for those who don't know Jesus, has a strong emphasis on, on evangelism. I know a pastor right now, he comes to my mind, his name is Matt Magnum. Man, that guy is a soul winner. Like he, he has an evangelist calling on his heart. He goes to Walmart. Every time he walks into Walmart, he walks out. He not only got his groceries, but he led three people to the Lord. So his church is very strong and evangelistic. Spiritually equated, a, a church that's very strong in evangelism has this heart for the lost and about telling other people about Jesus. But here's what happens. When an evangelistic heart dominates the house, what can happen sometimes is the gatherings can feel more like an Amway convention than they do a church service. Because it's like, here's all the tools. Here's the things that you need to do. This is how you're going to win people to Jesus. This is how we're going to grow this place. And it's like tools, tools. Here we go. Boom, 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 boom. And what happens sometimes in an evangelistic dominated place, the church can tend to be really pushy, opinionated, and even aggressive. Like they just become aggressive. It's like, come on, you need this. You need Jesus. You need him now. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know who Jesus is. I love him just like you. You don't love him? Where's your Jesus only shirt? I don't have a Jesus only shirt. You sang the song today. Why don't you have a Jesus only shirt? I, 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 I don't have one printed. I got the tattoos and everything. It's like, okay, calm down. They're aggressive. The shepherding church, these, these are churches who tend to do well at loving each other, caring for the needs in the body. Spirituality is, is really the strong communal and relational type thing. It's like, oh, we can just be friends. Let's just hang out. Let's all be friends together. It's interesting because family, in many ways, it's hard to have a large family, right? So when large family gatherings get together, it's like, man, we can't just go do it at, the, at my house anymore. Like, it, it's a lot. So if I was to say, hey, guys, hasn't it been a great week of 4th of July? You're all family. You're invited to our house for lunch today. Everyone, come on. You'd say, what's the address? My wife would be pulling out the gun. I'd fall over. You'd have to raise me back to life. 
So you can't do that because it's like you can't, you can't have that. So why does the average church in America under 100? It's because majority of our churches have a shepherd guy who's in that role, and he wants the relationship and the friendship and wants to know everyone. Some of you are offended that, I've, that I haven't been to your kid's birthday party. I'm sorry. You didn't invite me. It's your fault. But part of it is, as the family's grown, and part of it is, as we recognize that, that all of us have different gift sets and, and that we're a part of. Now, here's what happens in, in, in a, when a shepherding culture becomes the dominant. The church can become risk-averse. They don't want to take risks. It's like, why do, come on, us four, no more. Why do, why do we need more parking spots, Pastor? We don't need more parking spots. I have my own, Sally has hers, and Tom has his. We're good, Pastor. Why would we need more? Well, because there's more people who are going to come. No, whoa, 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 that's, that's, a little, that's a little too risky. They become codependent. They become exclusive and overprotective and cautious. Think about the American church, much of the American church today, and what you'll see is you'll see a lot of places that have become risk-averse. They're no longer reaching. They're no longer, they're not apostolic. They're out there trying new things. Just like us four, no more. And maybe it's not us four. Maybe it's us hundred, no more. We create these environments, these bubbles, it's cautious. We're exclusive, we're overprotective. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't be productive and I'm not saying that, that there isn't a piece that comes out of us where we should be cautious. But here's the thing, any one gift when used in that way to be the dominant gift in the house, you get dysfunction. Think about teaching for a minute. Teaching churches where there's a real strong teaching gift and I, I can think of many churches that are this way. John MacArthur, now you may not agree with him, but he's kind of hitting Facebook these days for some of the things he said about women in ministry and stuff, so I'll just use him as an example, but, and now some of you are like, I didn't know that, what happened? Anyways, go look, um, but um, he's, been, he's been saying, he's a teacher, he has a teaching gift in, in, on his life, you can see it, all the books he's written, all the things, man, that guy understands the scripture. Now, there are some things that I don't agree with that he understands about the scripture, and one of those being women in ministry. He basically says that women, you should be at home and just have babies and raise kids. I know some of you are like, but I will say this before you just throw the guy into the water or just, you know, throw him out or whatever. I will say, I think he does have some valid points as to what callings women have in the home. I'm not saying you can't work outside the house, but I am saying this. I do think that mothers have an active role in the lives of their children. Can I get an Amen. Just like fathers do. Fathers do too. So there's a role there, and, that, and I understand all of that, and so you can go look at all that, but in a, in a church where it's really strong, the teaching, what happens is, is, is when the teaching, there's this wise and patient, and they're committed to discipleship and digging into God's word, but when it becomes the, the dominant force, the church will likely become over-intellectual, over-objective, they, they, they uh, are knowledge-based communities where right doctrine is seen as more important than right doing. It's like what I believe is more important than what I do. No, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. They shall know you by your love one for another. Not they shall know you by your doctrine. Not they shall know you by those things. And you can tell for me, the teaching side of it isn't like this huge, strong thing. Now, someone like Amanda Mauricio right over here, that girl, she's, a, she's got a teacher's gift on her life. 
Ask her to do a Bible study with you. She'll be like, okay, we're going to do this Bible study. And she will bring pages. She's she done all the Greek insert. We're like, we just read one scripture. She's like, I know, I got, I got a whole book. And I'm like, who wrote the book? She's like, oh, I wrote it last night. <laughs> I'm like, Amanda, what? I mean, because like, she has a teacher's anointing on her. She has a teacher's gift that God's given. It's placed inside of her. You, you see that in different people. So how do we then find unity and balance in the church? We allow all five to happen. So I'm going to go on a limb and say this. I think in many ways we've been doing church wrong. Let me say, Pastor Brian, we're not doing church. We are the church. Okay. I think we have been the church wrong. Does that make sense? Because I think what's happened is, is we've allowed a primary gift of our primary communicator, our lead pastor in a church. And I believe God does call a pastor to pastor a church. He does give an oversight and there's different things. And we'll talk about that here a little bit later in these next few weeks. But what happens is, is the church has been given five when I think about our team here and some of the people that we brought on staff, there's specific callings or gifts that God's been placed inside of them. If you talk to Pastor Casey, he has a, he has a prophetic gift on his heart. Like it's, I mean, it's a calling, a, a gift. He, like he just, he operates. He's always trying to point people to God and just draw people in. That's why we're seeing things happen with our young people. Man, our young people are, are getting on fire for Jesus. I'm telling you adults, you better wake up because our young people, like, they are having some serious Jesus times. I came in the other night, Kosh and I, it was late. We were coming, it was like nine o'clock in the evening. We come in and, and I'm like, ah, oh, someone left the light on upstairs. So I go upstairs to turn the light off um, because it's, it's, it's actually, I'm a part of the church. So not just because I'm a pastor, but. Like when you see something that's not right, you should actually help with that. So just, just, just FYI, if you're ever here in the building and see something, don't think someone magically follows you around and turns the lights off. I don't. <laughs> but if I do see them, I'll turn them off. So I go upstairs and I go to turn the light off. And as I'm walking up there, I hear something in, in the prayer room. And I'm like, what, what's going on? And I kind of peek my head in there. And it's Chloe and Solomon and... Um, Anyway, someone else. So there's oh, Alex Ford. They're all up in there, and they had been in there praying. And they're like, oh, my goodness. We were so scared someone was here at church. They were freaked out that someone was at church. I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty big building. And they were, they were freaked out because someone was here. They thought someone was going to steal them. I'm like, you, you've just been spending time in prayer. But they, anyways, they're freaked out. So, so I'm talking with them, and they go, we lost track of time. We didn't realize it's nine o'clock. And I was like, well, what time did you guys get here? Well, well, we came to start praying at one o'clock and reading the word. And then we just, from one till nine, just we're up here reading the word and praying together. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. Like, yeah, let's see more of that. And, and I sit there and I think about that. I'm like, okay, so you got... Pastor Casey, who's in there, who's really pointing the kids there. You got Karis, who's in there helping serve. You got other youth leaders who are in these different callings. But we need also, we need an apostolic. We need, we need people who have a shepherding. Uh, like, when you think about Karis, like, we call these, there's some girls who come first, guy, and they're called the Sand Creek Girls. And I don't know why we call them the Sand Creek Girls, but that's how everyone calls them now, is the Sand Creek Girls. Because what's happened is, is they've been radically 
their life has just been radically on fire for Jesus, and now what's happening is, man, I gotta get going, but now what's happening is, is like the girls are just leading more people to Jesus. And so like every week their road keeps growing, their friends keep growing, they all keep coming to know Jesus. And I was talking with Karis, and she's like, I love just those girls. They're like the most greatest thing ever. And if you know Karis, Karis is the one who's over here on the piano. And that's just how she is. And she just loves and all those things. And so why? Because Karis is operating her gift. Do you see what I'm saying? Each and every one of us have been called by God to operate in our gift. So let me wrap this up, land the plane, because we've got more. Uh, Until we all obtain the unity of the faith in verse 13, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Hmm. Be unified, fivefold, gifts, all present in the church. In every way, into him who is the head, oh, it's into Christ, by whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, get this, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Could the reason be why the American church is not seeing growth is because we've allowed one or two dominant gifts to be the primary in the house rather than allowing five. Now listen, I don't know what it all means, but I'm willing to travel down a road of discovering what it all means. The church is not set up all that way. We're going to change some things, process through it, see what it looks like. We're going to walk through this series and discover things. I'm reading tons of resources on it. But here's what I believe is that every follower has a gift. Every single one of us. If I was to ask right now, how many feel like you have more of an apostolic gift set? Some of you raise your hand. You love that creating, starting, all that stuff. Shepherding, some of you raise your hand. Prophetic, some of you raise your hand. Evangelist, some of you raise your hand. Teacher, some of you raise your hand. Everyone raise their hands on different things. But what primarily has happened in the Western church is we've allowed the gift set of the one person who stands in this one spot, the lead pastor, be the one dominant thing throughout the church. And I'm just trying to say today, let's not do that anymore. And let's allow the way God intended it, five gifts, to actually take place in the church. And let's see what happens. Because I also know what God's word says. And his word tells us this, that if these things do happen, When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love being a part of a loving community. I love it when when some of you will come up and you'll just say, man, Pastor Brian, I'm praying for you. I love you. And I love you right back. I send texts to different people and I say I love them. I mean that. Now the world has tried to pollute what love means. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 actually shares this idea of what love is. It's interesting because a lot of times we use 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to, just, to talk about the love that a husband and wife has for each other. And though that's in there, that wasn't the original intent of what the scripture was actually being told to. The scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was actually being written to you and me, the church. And it was being written to us to instruct us on how to love one another, actually. 
So let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13. And what it says is this. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than itself. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep the score of sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the following of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. That's the kind of love that we are to have for one another. How do we have that love for one another? When we allow each and every one of us to be who God has specifically gifted us to be. Remember, the first part of Ephesians chapter four and verse like two, it says he gifts us with that. He's gifted you with something.